Hey, thanks, Anna, for reading that. As you can tell from this text that she just read from Judges 2, the, the main problem going on here is idolatry. And believe it or not, idolatry is one of the most frequently discussed problems within the Bible. Now, I'll tell you, that alone is mind-boggling to me, and it kind of blows my mind to, to see how the story unfolds in this tale of Judges and throughout the rest of the book. I mean, you have these people that are worshipers of Yahweh, and they've been told that Yahweh's one big beef with them is to not worship idols. Whatever you do, whatever you do, people, do not worship false idols. Only worship me. And he says it over and over again. Whatever you do, don't carve out images. Don't have divination ceremonies for for, for different objects and, and raw materials like your neighbors, the Canaanites, do. Whatever you do, don't bow down and kiss these idols and pray to them and sing to them. Whatever you do, don't worship idols. That's the one thing I want you not to do. And over and over, through the book of Judges and through the, the rest of the Old Testament, we see that this is the pattern that continually happens. The people of Israel continually go back to worshiping false gods, to worshiping idols. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about idolatry, I think of a land far away and a people long ago and far away. I think of some kind of fairy tale when I think of idolatry. I think of a BC era. I think of uh, a, an ancient people that are pre-science, pre-enlightenment, pre-common sense, pre-intelligence. I mean, why would you worship a false god like this? Uh, I mean, yeah, I see voodoo dolls every now and then. I might watch a show that has a, a Ouija board or see a Buddha statue or figurine, or I see horoscopes in my newspaper, and I guess there's, you know, there's some people that might take that a little more seriously than uh, than the average person does. So, so I, I see some things like that. For, but for the most, when I think of this kind of idolatry, I think that's that's not really a problem anymore. Surely that's not a problem for the year 2021 here in Central Pennsylvania for people like you and me. That's not really a problem anymore, is it? Well, see, the interesting thing, the intriguing thing, and listen here, is that. Idolatry comes up again several times, actually, throughout the New Testament. Now, the New Testament occurs, you know, maybe 3,000 years or so away from this tale that we just read in Judges chapter 2. It comes after the time of Jesus, after Jesus was, uh, was, was crucified, he died and resurrected. That's when the New Testament letters were written to us and to the church. But even in those letters, idolatry comes up. Now, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the, the, the idolatry that we see in Judges of worshiping blocks of stone or blocks of wood or a golden calf, things like that, those, those days are long gone. We, we, we don't see that in Judaism. We don't see that in the synagogues of the Jews uh, in, in the first century. We don't see that in Christian churches. It's still around in the known world around them. It's still a part of the, the Roman, the Greco-Roman culture around them. But if you were to go into a Christian house church, if you were going to go into a Jewish synagogue, around the time of Jesus, you would not see this as a problem. Which begs the question, why is it that over and over, the New Testament writers say stuff like, do not be idolaters? Once again in that same chapter, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. First John, dear children, this is the very last verse of, of John's letter here. The very last thing he tells them is, please keep yourself from idols. And there's many other verses throughout the New Testament that refer to idolatry in some way. We're not going to read through them all. You can look that up yourself. So why is it that the New Testament writers still write to people and ask them to flee from idolatry and do not become idolaters like the ancient Israelites did? Well, what we notice is that these passages are not just talking about people who would go into a, an ancient pagan temple and bow down their knee to a physical statue. Idolatry throughout the New Testament is described in other ways. And, here, here, and really, the New Testament 
point that I see in a book written by Tim Keller. He writes this quote, All people, including us, have an inexhaustible drive for God-making. And as we go through today's message, as we go through this text a little more slowly and and, and pick out certain themes that emerge from this text, here's kind of what I want you to walk away with today. I want you to walk away with remembering really three concepts, three ideas. The first is that we all have an inexhaustible drive for God-making, as I just said. Now, the problem with that is that we become what we worship. We end up bearing image to something else as opposed to bearing an image to God. We end up reflecting the image of an idol instead of reflecting the image of God, and the only solution is that we must replace this God. Now, it's unlikely that any of you watching this right now are going to be tempted later on today or later on in your life to take a block of stone and chisel it off and then, and then hold it and kiss it and pray to it and sing to it and, and worship a block of stone or a block of wood or, or, or a block of gold or, or something like that. It's unlikely that any of you watching this at any point in your life will be tempted to that kind of idolatry. However, we will all be tempted to make different kinds of gods. And the New Testament describes greed as a god. It describes uh, fornication and compares that with idolatry. It describes all kinds of addictions and obsessions and unhealthy behavior and habits as being parallel with idolatry. We all have an inexhaustible drive for God-making. The problem is we become what we worship, and then lastly, we're going to see that the only solution to idolatry is replacement. Our infatuation that we have with this idol that we have must be replaced with an infatuation for the true God his proper name being Yahweh, as we're going to see in the story. So let's go back to Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 7, and I'll read this to you. So Judges 2, 7, the people served the Lord, that's the proper name for God, so I'm going to call him Yahweh so that we don't get him confused with, with other gods. I'm not going to use the word God too much. The people served Yahweh throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen the great things the Lord had done for Israel. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither Yahweh nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh and served the Baals. They they forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt, and they followed and worshipped the various gods of the people around them and aroused Yahweh's anger." That's what we see in this text. Now, our text, you'll notice uh, somewhere in here, I'm not sure if it's on this screen or not, or the, uh, we see Baals are mentioned. Now, the name Baal can be the name of a particular god, or it can just be a generic name for God. In the same way that you and I might say that we prayed to God this morning, someone who worships uh, another god like Allah or the, the Brahmin or, or the Buddha, they may also be saying that, hey, I, I prayed to God this morning as well. Now, you and I know that we're, we're talking about very different gods when we use the same name God. The same can be true about Baal. Baal can be referring to a particular god that was worshipped in the Canaanite world, or it can just mean, you know, there, there are many Baals, there are many gods, there are many Asherahs. There were many Baals in that day, and every Baal, every god had a particular image. It could have been a tree that was carved and painted a particular way. It could have been a block of stone that had been chiseled and cut into a particular-looking statue. It could have been gold that was melted down and then formed into a form of some kind of animal to be worshipped, like a golden cow, as we're going to see also happens in Israel's history. And in the same way, you and I today, we may not bow down to idols of stone and gold and wood and and, and metal and, and things like that. However, There are many idols that surround us in our society and in the world. There are sexual idols, such as pornography, fornication, 
fetishes, romantic idealism. We can bow down to ritual idols, such as witchcraft, the occult, or superstition. There are relational idols at our expense. These would be codependent relationships, dysfunctional family dynamics. There are religious idols, moralism, an addiction to legalism, replacing a religious building, such as a temple or a church building, from a true worship of the true God. There are psychological idols of power, approval, control. There are cultural idols, such as racism or happiness or individualism or a worship of sports. There are material items, such as wealth, land, possessions, food can become an idol, something that we worship and demand or give all of our attention and obsession to in place of God. There are political idols, such as ideologies on the left or on the right. There's nationalism. Some have gone as far as to deify an idea like capitalism or the free market. And I would argue that last week on January 6th, we all saw throughout the world, we saw sorry, idolatry on full display for the world to see. And I would even argue that throughout this last election season, some have turned politics into an idol of their own worship. And listen, once again, we have to be reminded that we all have an inexhaustible drive for God-making. And listen, pal, I can make you an idol out of anything you want. Bring me a block of wood, and I can make you an idol. Bring me some stone, bring me some metal, bring me some silver, bring me whatever you want, and I can make you an idol before lunch. This is how idols work. And even in today's world, I can make you an idol out of anything you want. Bring me a credit card, and I can make you an idol. Bring me a national flag. I can make you an idol easy. Bring me a beautiful body. Bring me a syringe. Bring me a degree. Bring me a plate of comfort food. Bring me a feeling. Bring me whatever you want, and I can make you an idol before lunch. Because all of us have an inexhaustible drive for God-making. But the problem that we see here is that we become what we worship. Instead of reflecting God, we end up reflecting the image of this idol that we have made. Now, reading this story in Judges 2 should bring back our memories. If we've been right reading chronologically, this should bring back and jog a memory of something that happened in Exodus. It's this terrible incident in Israel's history that uh, throughout the camp, they, they keep the, the prophets and the writers, they keep reminding them of this instance that happened long ago in the book of Exodus. Hey, don't let this happen again. It's known as the incident of the golden calf. You see, what happened was, after Yahweh had delivered his people, after Yahweh had delivered the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt, they were on their way to this promised land of freedom. And Moses, their leader, goes up into a mountain to get instructions and to hear and to, and to speak with Yahweh, with God. But as he comes down, he notices that the people have grown weary of him being up there. They've gotten tired of him being up there. What happened to Moses? What happened to Yahweh? So what they end up doing is they take off their golden earrings, their golden necklaces. They collect gold from everybody within the tribe there. And they go to a priest named Aaron and say, hey, Aaron, we want you to melt this down and make us an idol. We want you to make us something that we can worship. Unfortunately, Aaron, the priest, he does exactly what they say. He, he melts down the idol and then molds it. He molds down the gold and molds it into an idol of a a baby cow, or a golden calf. Now, what is interesting is that from this point on, from this point in Israel's history and on through the rest of the Bible, even into the New Testament, we see the Israelites described in the same way that you would describe a golden calf. They're described as being a a stiff-necked people. Now, you good old central Pennsylvania folks, many of you grew up in farms or you live near a farm, and so you've seen this is the case that when you have a rope around a cow's neck and you're trying to pull it in a certain way, a heifer can be very stubborn, and they give you what we call a stiff neck, that they stiffen their body. They don't want to go in the direction that you're trying to guide them. In the same way that a calf 
is, is stiff-necked and stubborn. Over and over in the Bible, we see that God refers to the Israelites from this point on as being a stiff-necked people. In the same way that an idol has actual ears that have been molded into the animal and into the idol's uh, features. They have ears, but those ears can't see. They have eyes, but those eyes cannot see. These, these are the ways that the Israelites are described from this point on and throughout the rest of the Bible. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They're stiff-necked people. They have a hard heart. In the same way that this golden cow is made of nothing but metal and it's just hard on the inside, the Israelites, my people, Yahweh says, have a hard heart. They have become the very thing that they worship. And this is the primary problem with idolatry. This is why Yahweh is so opposed to the practice of idolatry. People were made to bear God's image, not bear the image of some created thing. Now, the interesting thing that happens in here is, thankfully, there's a replacement for this. There's a solution. The solution to idolatry is replacement. And we see that this is when Moses comes down from the mountain and he notices that the people are singing and worshiping and praising this idol that they have made. Here's how he demands them fix the situation. He asks and demands that this golden calf be ground down into a fine powder of, of golden dust. That golden dust, that fine powder is then spread out across the water. It's mixed in with the water, and he demands that all the Israelites drink that water. In other words, they were the ones who were saying that this is the idol that has delivered us from Egypt. This is the idol that provides for us. This is the idol that feeds us. And so now that idol is making good on the promises that it, it has made. And it is becoming literally the food and the nutrients that the Israelites have made. And this disgusting and, and, and really harsh punishment that comes to them is meant to be a reminder that this, this, is, not, this is not your God. This, is an empty, this, this idol is nothing but empty promises that will never deliver you, that will never be delivered upon. And so they are forced to drink that down and then replace that, that infatuation, that, that praise, that worship that was given to the idol. They are now asked to redirect that and develop an, an infatuation and a worship for the true God, for Yahweh. Now we're going to get back to our text here. Uh, we're going to start in verse number 13. And what we're going to see is that over and over this pattern develops where the Israelites continually uh, direct their attention to these false gods, and to these false idols. But what they don't fully realize at the time is that idol worship has natural consequences. The consequence of idol worship is, ironically, that you get exactly what you wanted. When you worship idols, you get exactly what you are desiring and seeking in the first place. You receive unfulfilled, empty promises that come your way. So here's what our text says. They forsook Yahweh and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, Yahweh gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of Yahweh was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. This is how it ends. He says, they were in great distress. So what did Yahweh do about this idolatry? What was Yahweh's response or reaction to this, this, this action of making, or making false gods and bowing down to first false gods? What did Yahweh do about this? Well, Yahweh let them have it. He let them worship and adore whatever they wanted. And that, in turn, sounds like a good thing, but it ended up being the consequence and the punishment for their idol worship. So let's go over this again. We'll just review these three points several times throughout this message. We all have an inexhaustible drive for God-making, but the problem with this is that we become what we worship. 
Instead of being image bearers to the true God, we end up being an image bearer to this idol. We end up reflecting the idol rather than reflecting the creator. The problem with idolatry is that we become what we worship. And the gods of Canaan represented everything that was wrong with the world. The gods of Canaan were bloodthirsty gods, racist, patriarchal, lovers of war, lovers of hate, sexually insatiable gods. And therefore, the Canaanites who worshiped these Canaanite gods were also violent and unjust and sexually unsatiable. And so when the Israelites decided to abandon God, to abandon Yahweh, the true God, Yahweh gave them exactly what they wanted. He gave them abandonment. They chose to swear their allegiance to violent gods, and so the Lord, in turn, allowed them to be overcome by violence. Their fields were torn down and burned down. They were taken from their homes. Their women were taken advantage of. Their children were taken, stolen, and enslaved. This, this is what resulted from their idolatry. They, they wanted and desired and wanted to worship and adore violent, unjust, bloodthirsty gods. And in turn, the abandonment and the violence that comes from that is what came to them. Now, thankfully, thank goodness, God is a merciful God. And even though the Israelites had turned to holding these, these useless, lifeless, helpless idols, and they had, had in turn, they had become what they worshiped. They are now helpless and useless and lifeless in themselves, but they, they turn out to God. They end up praying to him. Over and over, this pattern happens. They, they pray to him and say, God, we need, we need deliverance. They turn from those idols, and they direct their attention back to Yahweh, the true God, and Yahweh always delivers them. He sends a leader. He sends someone that they call a judge who gives them supernatural victory in battle, to uh, get away from their enemies. So here's what this text says, picking up in verse 15 again. They were in great distress. Then Yahweh raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned away from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to Yahweh's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, He was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies, as long as the judge lived. For Yahweh relented because of their groanings under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and wicked ways. Sorry, I didn't update the slide there, but that's how it ends. And in this text, in in this paragraph, we see that the book of Judges shows us a path to continue throughout the, the book of Judges. We're going to see that the people turn away, they, they turn their affections away from Yahweh and towards these false and violent gods. And they end up going through this pattern where the violence overtakes them. And they, they sought abandonment, and so God gave them abandonment, and now they're in distress, and they turn back to him, and a judge comes and delivers them. They, they continue to, to worship Yahweh until their affection is drawn to these false gods, and the pattern just continues over and over and over. This reminds us of the points that I made earlier, that we have an inexhaustible drive for God-making. Now, when you read this, I imagine you wonder the same question that I wonder. Why? Why does this keep, why do these people keep turning to these blocks of stone and these blocks of, of metal? Why, why do these people keep turning to these carved trees that have been turned into gods? Why do they keep doing this? Of course, the answer to that is really because these people that lived 5,000 or so years ago are just like you and me. 
They have an inexhaustible drive for God-making, just like we have an inexhaustible drive for God-making. And of course, all of us would think, well, I'm more sophisticated than that. I'm more sophisticated than this ancient person who would actually think that a block of stone can, 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 can deliver promises to me. However, once again, what we see in the New Testament is that those of us who are more advanced or more sophisticated than our ancient ancestors aren't all that much more sophisticated than them because we still turn to things that offer empty and vain promises, unfulfilled promises that we hope will deliver us and give us satisfaction and, and make us feel better about ourselves. In Colossians 3.5, we see that greed is compared with idolatry. In 1 John 5.21, it warns us of anything that preoccupies our heart and calls that idolatry. Philippians 3.2 speaks of people who have God as their belly. Titus 1.14 rebukes legalistic Christians for having certain doctrines or moral standards that they equate as their own God. 1 Corinthians 6 links sexual sin with idolatry. And in Matthew 6.24, Jesus links the love of money with idolatry. They're, they're, I'm not going to read these full passages, but you see this pattern of we all have this inexhaustible drive for God-making, whether it's a block of stone or whether it's greed or, or anything else for that matter. We all have an inexhaustible drive for God-making, and the problem is that we become what we worship. We need to heed the words of Psalm 115.8. Those who make them will be like them. You know what? Alcohol makes me feel interesting. It makes me feel better about my circumstances. It makes me feel more happy about my life. However, over time, someone who is addicted to alcohol, someone who is an alcoholic, ends up becoming just what he worships. He ends up becoming a fermented mess in his life. Sexual addiction, can, it can make me feel less lonely. It can make me feel as if I'm loved. But we all know that sex apart from a loving marriage relationship is actually empty. It's vain. It's a counterfeit. And over time, a sex addict ends up becoming abused, feeling lonely, feeling guilty. Over time, he or she becomes what he or she worships, empty love. Money makes me feel like I'm in control. I feel that the more money I have, the less, the less anxious I'm going to be about something bad happening, the more control I'm going to feel that I have. However, over, over time, a greedy person ends up feeling anxious about everything, and the more he has is never enough. The greed takes over, and he becomes what he worships. My work can make me feel important. My work can make me feel like I'm neat. However, over time, an alcohol or a workaholic, someone who is addicted to his work, becomes what he wor- worships just a, a working mess that cannot be pulled away from his work, enslaved by his work. For some, food gives them comfort, makes them feel better about their situation, makes them feel good, and, and they, they want to continually go to this comfort food. But over time, they end up becoming what they worship, and they become morbidly obese. Over and over we could go, but there comes a point in everyone's life when their affections can be drawn so far that it actually turns into full-blown idolatry, and they become what they worship. And they are bringing glory and attention to their idol rather than glory and attention to the true God, to Yahweh. The only solution to this, of course, is that we must turn our infatuation away from idolatry and turn our infatuation towards the true God, towards Yahweh. The only solution to idolatry is replacement. Now, I want you to look at me uh, at this, this New Testament text that was written to the Christians in Corinth during the first century. Here's what the text says. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Now, the writer's not specifically talking about the book of Judges, but he's just in general talking about the Israelites and this pattern that they had of setting up idols and and worshiping false gods and all the issues that came and resulted from that. And he's saying, hey, these things were written down, and we talk about these things, and we read these things, and they're in your Bible because they're to remind you 
that you can't let that happen to you. Don't let this pattern fall on you. Don't set your heart on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted above what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, and he repeats what he said just again, flee from idolatry. You see, the Israelites, they were living in this land of Canaan in which they were surrounded by Canaanite people and tribes that had many gods. They were surrounded by Baals and by Asherahs. They were surrounded by the false gods. And they had to remind themselves, they had to develop this pattern of reminding themselves that Yahweh was, was their God. These are not my gods. Those gods represent nothing that my God represents. Those gods will harm me. They are only empty promises. They are not even real. I, I, I need to direct my attention to Yahweh. They had to continually remind themselves of that and be driven uh, in, in their affections and in their desires to their true God, to Yahweh. Fast forward uh, 3,000 years or so to the time of Corinth when this was written. And Paul is telling these followers, these followers of Jesus in this church of Corinth, hey, listen, I know you're surrounded by the Greco-Roman gods. You're surrounded by the Roman pantheon. I know you're surrounded by various idols and, and there's incense burnings in the streets. There's national holidays that have been devoted to these various gods. And you're going to be tempted to worship these false gods along with all the other neighbors, neighboring people around you. But you have to remember, flee from idolatry. These are only empty promises. These are not real gods. Do not fall prey to this. Flee from idolatry. Remember this and keep your affection Uh, in in full devotion to the true God, to Yahweh. In the same way, those of us today, 2,000 years after that instance, have to be reminded of the same thing. We have to keep our affections and our desires and our allegiance laser-focused on our true God, on Yahweh. That is the only way out. Now, I wonder how many of you have read uh, a book by J.R.R. Tolkien called The Hobbit, now, this book is not The Hobbit. This is actually a prequel to the book called The Hobbit, but it sets up the stage for us to be introduced to a character named Smeagol. Okay, so here's a, sorry, that was a repeat of that. So here's a picture of Smeagol. Uh, as far as we can tell, Smeagol is some kind of Hobbit-like character. Some would say he is a Hobbit, and he seems to have an ordinary life. He has uh, hobbies. He has a family that he spends time with. He seems to be an average uh, not human, but, but Hobbit, <laughs> as, as uh, Tolkien would write. However, this incident happens when he is fishing with his cousin, and he stumbles this ring, which you see in the picture. Now, the ring is not an ordinary ring like the one that I have on my finger. It's actually a ring that possesses powers, which uh, ends up becoming the series known as the Lord of the Rings, right? It has these powers. The most notable powers that this particular ring has is that it can make the wearer invisible, and it also lengthens your life so that your, your lifespan is expanded and you end up not dying. Now, the problem that happens as we read on this story of Smeagol, we find out that he develops this infatuation with the ring. He ends up going off by himself and, and holding the ring, and you can even see the desperation, the obsession on his face as he, he, begins to, he begins to talk to the ring. He calls it my precious, my precious. You know, over and over, he calls it my precious. He talks to it. If any other person or being, uh, you know, creature comes up near him, he, he kind of flinches and, and, and holds it off. He wants to protect the ring. He begins to defend the ring, and, and this just continually spirals until he, he just removes himself from his former life. He removes himself from over other people and becomes just obsessed with protecting this ring and being by himself. He doesn't want anybody near him. He doesn't want the ring to be stolen. He becomes absolutely addicted to this relationship, this idolatry, this, this worship of this particular ring. 
this 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 transition begins to happen in him and uh, I, I realize some of you are watching this in the living room with small kids. If, if your kids are maybe easily frightened by, by pictures and stuff, if you could just have them look away for uh, maybe a minute or two. Uh, here's a transformation that begins to take place, and he, he begins to even become a different person. And as you continue reading the story of the Hobbit uh, and, and his transformation, you see that he becomes a completely different person. He's no longer recognizable as Smeagol anymore. In fact, he doesn't even remember his own name. He forgets his own name as he's living in this dark cave, eating fish where no other being can really see. He ends up just being referred to as Gollum, which is uh, basically a, a play on words on this, this, this sound, this, this disgusting sound that he makes with his throat. He begins to be called Gollum, and he, he begins to look less like a real person and more like some kind of animal, some kind of beast. This, this ring has completely overtaken him, and he has become what he worshipped. I'll go ahead and turn the screen so that if you, uh, if you have kids in the room, they can look now. But what ends up happening to Gollum is that he becomes what he worships. The ring has power to make one invisible, and now he has become invisible to the rest of the world. The ring demands obsession, and now he has this obsession and this addiction that just rules his life and has changed him into a, a corrupt person being or creature. The ring has power to extend his life, and so now his life won't end even though he desperately wants it to. He hates his life, but his life will not end. He can't stand the life that he's a part of. Gollum has become a completely different person because of his addiction to this ring. Now, I want to remind you that we all have an inexhaustible drive for God-making, and I want to make a distinction here. We, we, all of us, all of us people, all of you watching, and me, myself included, we have attractions and we have affections. We have temptations that pull us away from our creator. And I want to I want to just make sure that I'm clear that idolatry is a very specific kind of sin. It's not any kind of attraction. But it's a very specific sin in which your attraction to something has drawn you away from God. Your worship for God has been turned to a worship of this this item or this person or this relationship or, or whatever it is. It's 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 this addiction or obsession with something else that has taken hold in your life. And of course the problem is that becoming what you worship and ends up eating you alive from the inside out. I want you to know that you will either reflect God's character or you will reflect the vain, unfulfilling promises of an idol. You become what you worship. And I want to remind you that the solution to this is directing your affections, directing your attention, and and redirecting that, replacing it with an affection and an infatuation with the true God, with Yahweh, with the God that we serve. You can do this through spiritual rhythms, such as Bible reading and and worshiping corporately with other believers, through prayer, through fasting, and so forth. You can do this by having Christian communities, such as a Live, Love, Lead group. I will say, the only way to help overcome our addictions is help from some other person. And so I encourage you that if you have an addiction, if you have an obsession, if you would say that, man, I have this, this, maybe I'd call it an idol, this, this grip on me, that is pulling my attention and my worship away from God towards this other thing or this concept or this idea. If, if you feel that that's a part of your life, you, you can't do this alone. Gollum could not get rid of this ring by himself, and you cannot get rid of your idolatry alone. So I, so I, I beg you and urge you, if this is a problem with you, if you have a, a sexual addiction or, or an addiction to greed or, or an addiction to any of these things that we've talked about, I would, I would strongly urge you to talk about this with someone in your Live, Love, Lead group, someone who's a close friend and a Christian and, and a wise confidant, or if you have none of that, then I would encourage you to call the church, and uh, there's a number you can dial in which you can speak with the staff on call, and then someone at our church would be glad to talk to you about that. 
This is how the story of Judges ends. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. They forgot Yahweh, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherahs. And I want this to know that I want you to know this doesn't have to be your story. This doesn't have to be the way that your battle against idolatry ends. So I would encourage you to seek help and establish those spiritual rhythms in your life. Now, as this online worship service ends, I want to remind you that church is not over. You are the church. You are called to be the church. And so when this screen goes black and the service is over, church is not over. Church is just beginning. And as we end this, I want to remind you that you are not being dismissed. You are being sent. And so you are being sent to reflect the Lord and his character. You are being sent to cast down idols, all forms of addictive habits and affections. You are being sent to be an image bearer of the true God. You are not dismissed. You are sent. Thank you.